Welcome to the PEO podcast, where we interview industry leaders to discuss all things PEOs. From compliance to technology to client relations and everything in between, I'm your host, Andreas Toller. Profits are important, but delivering services are more important. And what I learned really early on was that to manage a business effectively, your focus can never be about making money. It always has to be about doing a good job taking care of your clients. Welcome to episode 13 of the PO podcast. Today, I'm joined by PO with Bill Maynes. Bill has been in the PO world for 20 years and began his own company in 2002. We'll chat about what defines exceptional customer service, the importance of building a great team, and organic growth in the marketplace. Let's jump right into it. Um, tell us about you know, your history. How did you get into the PO industry? Well, I was. it's been several years. I, it's 20, 24 years ago. I was actually in the uh, media broadcasting business in sales and management. And that industry was completely changing uh, a lot. And it's, that was the beginning stages of consolidations and TV stations owning radio stations again and all these media groups buying and gobbling each other up. And I just... I really felt just detached and really far away from my clients and frankly, far away from the people that held my future in their hands. And so I went looking for a new industry and kind of stumbled upon this uh, industry called PEO. And um, it really intrigued me because I saw that there was something that really fulfilled a need in the marketplace. And I was, I've got a little entrepreneurial spirit in that I was looking for something that would be new to Wichita but not a new business. I didn't want to have to create something. And here was this whole industry out there flourishing in other markets that did not exist in my market. So it really attracted me in that way. And so I went to work for a local company that wanted to do that. And uh, about a year into it, we were acquired by a, at, the, at that time, new startup PEO that had some big money behind it and they wanted to expand in our part of the world. So uh, I joined that company and, and was a regional manager for them. And three years into our relationship, uh, we had a different definition of what customer service was. And so I parted company. And in July of 2002, it'll be 20 years this July, uh, founded the company that I now own and operate called Cindio Outsourcing. So that's kind of how I got into it. It was more of a, just kind of a, a lucky thing more than anything, but it was really intriguing in the beginning. And it, it sounds like that, like you, you had that entrepreneurial spirit and wanted to create something and, and, and saw uh, an opportunity. So, so in the early years of the company, what did you focus on initially to, to really get things going, get things started? It, it was interesting when I first started, I had two other employees, a person that was really kind of my right hand at the previous company I was with that knew about systems and software. And then we hired somebody to do payroll administration. Uh, and then we had to build, you know, anytime you're going to go sell boats, uh, the first thing you got to do is build all the tools to even be able to build a boat. And then you have to build your first boat, then you can go sell it. But we spent six months, in essence, investing in building our infrastructure of how we're going to do things from as simple as creating change forms for our clients to all the little bitty things you have to do to be ready to take care of a client. So we spent some time doing that. And then on January 1 of 2003, we brought on seven clients and 300 workside employees. And we started just doing business. And at that time, I hired another person to help us with administration. Uh, I was really fortunate in that. One of my financial partners in the business, who's still my financial partner today, was also my health insurance broker. 
and was able to get us a health plan that nobody else seemed to be able to get. And we were able to get that in from day one, which really was helpful. But I spent most of my time in the early days, I would scatter around trying to find a client. And then I would have to stop going to try and find new clients and spend all my energy bringing on the client. And then we would have to do all the transitional things to get them going, as well as taking care of the clients we currently had. And over a short period of time, you start seeing that, well, I'm going to need some help with this as you start getting a little bit of success and start giving revenue and realizing that profits are important, but delivering services are more important. And what I learned really early on was that to manage a business effectively, your focus can never be about making money. It always has to be about doing a good job taking care of your clients. If you can do that, the byproduct is hopefully you'll be able to do it profitably and make money. But if you focus on making money, you shortchange yourself in a service world. And, and I just really spent my time and energy doing whatever it took to take care of our clients. And then that as that evolved and we got more clients and then we hired more people. Pretty soon it evolved into the animal I have today with 48 employees and 6,000 worksite employees that we take care of, about 110 clients. And, and, you know, it was an evolution more than anything else. I established some, some cultural rules early about what my idea of customer service meant. Uh, at our company, we only have three rules uh, to this day. They were established early, but even to this day, I communicated to every new employee. Rule number one is clients hire us to take care of, of what is a problem for them. So come to work every day ready to solve problems. And rule number two is if you ever sweep a problem under the rug, you get one warning because our problems get big and expensive fast. So we can't sweep them under the rug. We're hired to take care of them. And the rule number three is if the, if the words, that's not my job, ever escape your lips, you can't work at our company because it's everybody's job to take care of our clients. And it's really more of an attitude. And I, I, I demonstrated this a lot to my new employees that when somebody calls, they don't want to hear that's not my job. What they want to hear is let me get you some help. Let me get you to somebody that can help you. It's the same thing. We know it's not your job to do it, but it's the attitude of I'm here to help you get what you need done. And I'm going to go get that done for you. And, and, and really, that was transformational for us, is being able to, everybody embraces that attitude in our company. We all know what our roles are and the jobs we're supposed to do, but we also know that we're here to take care of the clients. And at the end of the day, that means all hands on deck when it comes to doing that. And it's really helped our company culture be what I want it to be, which is uh, kind of an attitude of servitude. And then early on, I established some feelings after... Simon Sinek was very influential on me when his book Start With Why came out, and it really caused me to do a deep dive as to why do I come to work every day. So I communicate that with all the employees of what our golden circle is for, for Cindio, and at the center of that is taking care of each other, which allows us to take care of our clients, which allows us to go home and take care of our family. So it's really an introspective look at, at what we do. My, my job in the company is taking care of my employees. Everybody else's job in the company is taking care of our clients. So I have a really, I think it's the easiest job in the world because I'm here to give them everything they need to take care of the clients and whatever that takes is, let's just get it. Uh, but it does require some foresight. It requires some planning. It requires a challenging status quo. Going through a complete redraft of our company right now in every department of if we're going to be twice this size in five years, can we keep doing it the way we're doing it? If the answer is no, we need to change today to anticipate that. And so we're really going through that exercise now. And it's, uh, it challenges everybody in my management team and, and frankly, uh, everybody in our organization, because, you know, if you're not changing, you're dying, but nobody likes change. <laughs> it's just, we like doing it the way we've always done it. 
and change, you know, causes a little bit of angst sometimes. And it's just, you just have to embrace it as part of a growth pattern and, and, and go from there. Yeah, oftentimes, right, you can you can change from the best, uh, from the worst thing in the world to the best thing. And like people still resist change. Still resist it. There's so much here to unpack. Start with one question. So between the lines, you mentioned uh, your financial partners. Did you bootstrap the company? Did you get some investors? Like, how did you get things started? And then how did it evolve it, um, you know, over the years? Well, obviously, for me to go out and do this on my own, I would need some financial backing. Uh, one of those financial backers was my health broker, who's my partner still today. And uh, when I approached him about doing it, I had approached, I'd written a business plan and I'd taken it to him. I said, I'd like you to be this. I had written the business plan for four partners at X amount per partner. And he said, well, I know another guy that's looking for a deal. Let's meet with him. I'm in. I said, okay. So we went and met with this guy who had just sold his family business and had some money parked and was looking for an entrepreneurial investment. And when, the, when we were through with the presentation, uh, I'll never forget my partner, my current partner, looked at him and said, look, I'm not interested in having three other partners. I'll take half if you'll take half. And he said, okay, let's do it. So I started out with two investors. One of them was very sales and marketing oriented, which is my health broker. The other gentleman was legal and accounting, which he was the biggest blessing for me in the early days because it was all about you know, watching your P's and Q's and accounting for every single dollar and knowing where all the money is supposed to go. And he was really, really good at that and really helpful in helping us put in processes and systems to manage that. About seven years ago, that same partner was, he was older than my other partner and I um, by about 12 years. And he started to get into the place where being an entrepreneurial, but he was interested in income and we were interested in growth. And sometimes you sacrifice income for growth, you reinvest it in your company. And he decided at that point that uh, he probably needed to be out. And so we made him a generous offer and he had accepted it. And we paid him quite a bit. We paid him 5X what he invested. And he got that 5X return on his investment over about six years. But in the meantime, he had got 3X that investment back in return. So it was really a good investment for him, obviously. And it, the timing of it was good as well. Uh, so now I'm, I, I literally have one other financial partner. We are 50-50 owners. We have an agreement that if we ever disagree on something so vehemently that we can't agree to it, then we will flip a coin and we'll live with the result. Uh, we've never had to flip a coin, uh, mainly because we talk through things. Uh, he's very growth oriented. He's done extremely well. He sold his business. He's retired now. He doesn't need money. Uh, so for him, it's where can we take this thing and, and are we doing the best we can do to beat, to reach our potential? And he's all in on, let's grow this thing as big as we can. So it's, it was interesting. I thought I would need uh, a half a million dollars to get to profitability. We ended up needing a little under 400,000 to get to profitability. And then that was paid back within two years after we stopped putting money in and taking money out. It took about two more years to get it all paid off. So uh, it, it was, a it, from their standpoint, obviously a very good investment. But from my standpoint, it gave me a lot of security knowing I had people behind me that believed in what we were doing, that had the financial acumen to know that this was a good thing for them as well as for me, and uh, really believed in the business model itself. So it was very helpful. I'm not sure if I started today that I could start one for that little amount of money. Now, that was 20 years ago. So right. a half a million 20 years ago might be a million and a half or two million now. But but I'm not even sure that I could get it done that cheaply because of all the resources you have to have today that you didn't right. need 20 years ago. And it's really exploded from a compliance standpoint, uh, from a liability standpoint. The products that you could buy 20 years ago aren't available today 
Uh, there's a lot more scrutiny in the health insurance and workers' comp insurance worlds that really make it difficult for a startup to get plans without a lot of heavy financial back. So I'm really fortunate from the timing standpoint that I began when I did. But uh, it was just, yeah, it was a bootstrap. It was just get in there and work your fingers to the blade and then work some more and figure it out and you can sleep when you die. It sounds like, you know, for, for everybody that was involved, it was a great outcome to your point. Have you ever thought about taking on institutional investments, right? More and more PE monies is flying, uh, coming to the market, right? That That's the first part. And then the second part is like, for somebody that, you know, maybe wants to go into the PO market today, with all your experience, what, what would you recommend somebody? You kind of indicated like, hey, you might need more capital reserves, right? Then you might have needed like 20, 25 years right. ago. How do you look at that? Well, to answer your first question, the PE world is exploding in the PEO space. I it, It's weekly. I am receiving an email or a phone call from somebody saying they're representing somebody that wants to get in our space and they're looking for a company like mine. So that's not unusual, obviously, but uh, I, I'm really fortunate in that my oldest daughter is in the PE business in Chicago. Fortunately for me, and probably for her too, their minimum entry of a company in value is 150 million. I, I, I actually glean a lot of knowledge from them without ever being worried about them trying to buy me because I'm too small for them. But it's really opened my eyes to what's going on in the world. And frankly, the reason it is so popular and why the multiples are so good right now is that we have a business model that has the ability to be profitable and has predictable revenue streams. And when you have a, a service business that, that you can count on your clients being there, or 90% of your clients being there the next year, it's it's literally a perpetual service. It's not a, I mean, my contract is one year and then becomes a 90 day rolling agreement. You know, I have lots of clients that are still on our first contract from 20 years ago. And, and it's only because we earn the right to keep that business by providing the services. And if at any time we haven't earned that right, then then they're free to leave. But when you have that kind of a contractual uh, openness, it does allow you to have more. It, it does keep you sharp. You, you, you literally got to sharpen your pencil every day to keep doing a good job, because if you don't, you'll lose your clients. And there's enough competition out there that if you're not doing a good job, there are other people doing it. And with the advent of the digital world now, it's getting a lot easier to get service providers from outside of the market, as long as you're comfortable with Zoom calls and and phone calls, but not in in-person presence. Uh, but that's becoming a big driver in our business, and that's also another reason the PE firms like it is because you're not limited to a geographic area if you have uh, some scalability to you. So that I get why they like us, I really do. It's just my place in this world right now is just that I love operating my company, and I'm not willing to give up my future growth for the next five to ten years to somebody else that's just got a big pile of money that. If they gave it to me, I wouldn't know what to do with anything. So I, my, my company is a great investment. It gets good return on investment every year. And I think I'm going to just hold on to it for a bit and grow it. But what I've challenged my team is that if somebody came in and bought us, this is what they were. And when you get 20% year over year growth, well, why would we accept any less ourselves? Because if somebody's put once that and they own you, then we should expect that from ourselves anyway. So we're really doing some transformational things, but you know, growth is really the big thing for us now. If somebody, uh, if you would have to advise somebody who wants to come right. to the industry now, like you know, you mentioned the the dynamics have changed. What are the things to consider? Well, I think the fact is, is because of the compliance world and because of the product world, that it's really, really difficult to establish a PEO now without really good financial backing. Uh, when I started, there weren't working capital requirements. 
You just, if you had more than $5 of your own money in the bank account, you were fine. Well, now, you know, there are a lot of states in licensing. You got to have at least a hundred grand of working capital. That's just money that's sitting in your account doing nothing. And a lot of uh, insurance products require upfront investment in them that can be substantial because they're going to take your annual premium and they're going to say, we want 70% of it upfront. Well, you know, if you don't have that 70%, then it's pretty difficult to get those products. And so it's, it's just become a, a much higher demand to get software, to get insurance products, and to have the necessary expertise you need to have to be able to do the job every day. And so I think, you know, having deep financial pockets, no matter who it is, uh, whether it be personal investments or PE guys or whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, there are not lots. I, I know a couple of people that have started PEOs recently, but they're usually started by people that have been in the PEO space for a while. And they know what they're doing and they're, they're going for their second go around, so to speak. They, they've got enough experience in either running a PEO or, or being in a PEO that they know that they can go do the job. So it, it's a bigger get now, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. Uh, the real issue is, is can you do it in a marketplace where you have the ability to to have a runway to where you can do that? Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate in the market. I mean, I don't have a lot of competitors. It does inhibit our growth a little bit because nobody knows what to do. We still have to tell that story every day. But it also gives us a lot of opportunity in the marketplace. So, so congrats on on the organic growth, right? I think that that that's really impressive, right? Uh, to do that year over year. You mentioned that, I mean, this was certainly a journey for the company, but also for you, right, as, as a leader of the company. How did you develop all the years? Do you have a coach, a peer group, like a support system? Right. Tell us more about that. You, you know, it's interesting. I have all of those now. Uh, about seven years ago, I was introduced to an organization called Vistage, uh, Vistage International, which is really a peer group CEO type of organization that also provides coaching. And when I joined, I was very much involved in the business. I was still the only salesperson in the company, uh, or I think I had just hired a guy to be my salesperson, but I was training him and I was still doing all the sales. It was the last thing in the company I gave up was doing sales, but uh, I was still involved in the weeds. And, and this just really challenged me to get out of the way and quit being, trying to be everything in the company uh, and get my fingers out of it and trust in my people and build an infrastructure that could that, that the people could be challenged and, and compelled to take care of our clients without me being there to do it for them. And it was a really tough transformation. Delivering HR services and managing benefits was never my daily work anyway. So I always had people for that. That was easy for me to give up because I didn't do that. Sales, well, it was a whole different ballgame. And so they really challenged me. And, and about four years ago, probably, I finally stepped out and I have two salespeople now. I am not involved at all in anything of the day-to-day -day operations of our company. My job, uh, as I really am fond of saying, my only job is taking care of my employees and giving them all of the resources they need to take care of our clients. Well, that requires me to look down the road. It requires me to figure out where we're going to be. What does it look like? Is the way we're doing it today going to work in two years or three years or five years? I remember three years ago, I challenged my CFO. We were using QuickBooks. And I said, if we have 50 more clients and get you know 30% bigger, can we still use QuickBooks? And he said, no, we can't. I said, then we need to get set now. That's where we're going. And so we, we made the switch three years ago to a new software system, which was monumentally great for my accounting team. I have five entities, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes in accounting of who gets allocated what and keeping track of all the different general ledger codes, whose money goes where, and and then consolidating all those financials together to get a real true picture of how we're doing. 
before we used to spend so many manual hours doing that because QuickBooks couldn't consolidate. And this new software does, and it's saved us a ton of time and also is a lot more accurate uh, in our accounting side. But that was just one area of the business. I knew that was a challenge for us. And so I said, let's get something better. Uh, we're doing that now in every department. Uh, how do we? How can we do it better? What do we need to change? What do we need to do to prepare ourselves for being twice as big or two and a half or three times as big, whatever that time period is? I, I'm trying to double in five years. If we do so, what what are we going to look like then? And and the, the real challenge is nobody likes change, but it's interesting. I'm finally telling my team that we have to do exactly what we're asking our clients to do: just change the way you're doing it before, so you can go and do things better in the future. And so we kind of have to, you know, practice what we preach of, of evolving ourselves. It's difficult because nobody likes change. But at the same time, if you don't ask the tough questions and really question how you do things, you really can't evolve to be anything more than you are today. So we're really embracing that and, and looking forward to the challenge it's going to bring. But, but it's really, I've got a really strong, young workforce that's ready to do some great things. And uh, my job is to kind of stay out of their way and let them go do it. And um, they, I think we're going to get there. I can clearly hear the, the passion about the growth and the sales, but right. it, it's, it, it sounds to me that that might have been the hardest thing for you to give up, right? You know, from being yeah. the, the rainmaker, so to speak, to maybe what, what we could call like an architect, right? Where, where you're now right. not involved in the day-to-day -day anymore. Tell us about that journey, specifically on the sales side of giving up that, creating the systems to, to be successful. Well, it's funny because we're um, and not necessarily reflective. It wasn't my idea to call it this, but we our monthly employee, employee of the month of the world is called GSD, and we call it Get Stuff Done. Um, but it came from our team saying, you know, that's what we're here to do is get stuff done. And I, it's interesting. I just did another personality profile. I'm always interested to see if these profiles really tell you who you are. And one of the things it said about me was, is that I was a get stuff done kind of guy. That's just who I was. And the problem is when you're not getting stuff done, I mean, I tell you where my biggest struggle was when I started getting out of the way and letting them do it. I found myself sitting, going, what am I going to do? I spent 30 years doing stuff. And now all of a sudden, I don't get to do anything anymore. It was a really big challenge for me mentally because I thought, if I'm not doing something, I'm not, I'm not contributing. I've had to learn that. And now I accept it. And I, and I and actually am grateful for it because I've learned that my job is to think. My job is to be involved in, in looking what, what our company's going to look like down the road and then providing the resources and having the conversations with everybody about how we do that. And, you know, sometimes there's some tough discussions, but at the end of the day, it's my job is to have vision. That's my job. And if I can do that better, then the, everybody benefits. And I've had to learn how to do that and, and get better at it. Um, I've always had an ability to have conversations with anybody about our business. Uh, you know, when you've been in sales for 35 years or however many years, I've been in for a long time, more, more than that, about 40 years, um, it just comes naturally. And so when I don't get to do that, that's when I felt, I didn't feel like a failure. I just felt like that I wasn't, I got to do something, you know, and when you've been a doer all these years and you don't get to do anymore, that was my biggest challenge was accepting that and accepting my new role and moving into, um, but I've, I've challenged my team that anybody can transform themselves. Anybody can. I'm a perfect example of that. I was the guy that spent 35, 37 years doing things. And now if you ask me, what do you do? All my employees will tell you not very much, right? But it's at the end of the day, it is, it's my job is to do that. 
My job is to give them all the resources they need to take care of them. And that's my job. And so now I've had to embrace that. It was a difficult transformation. I got challenged a lot by my Vistage coach. I'm like, why are you doing that? No, you have people that could do that. Like, yeah, but I like doing it. Yeah, but that's not your job anymore. You know, and it really took a while for me to kind of embrace that. But it's the best thing that ever happened to me because now my organization is flourishing because I've given everybody else the freedom to do what they need to do. That's really what's made it work. It sounds like for you, that transition of working in the business and now on the business and like being involved more in the strategy really allowed or enabled some of the the, the growth. Um And, and, you know, what, what was interesting in, in the discussion that we had uh, prior to this recording, you mentioned on the sales side being extremely thoughtful and intentional about the idea of client profile and go-to-market strategy. Tell us right. more about that. Well, when I started, uh, you know, I wanted to be, because we were a very high-touch business and very service-oriented, I wanted to be near my clients. So I said early on, we're only going to deal with clients in Kansas. That's it. We're not going anywhere. Well, you know, I've had to kind of adapt that a little bit because at the end of the day, I'm in Wichita, which is southern Kansas. And the Oklahoma border is 40 miles south of me. Well, we now have clients in northern Oklahoma, but they're they're less than an hour away, whereas Kansas City at the other side of the spectrum of Kansas is two hours away, two and a half hours away. And we have clients in Kansas City as well. So I kind of had to adjust that. But I really wanted my lane to be, if I can't drive there and home in the same day, I don't want to take them on as a client because then I'd be asking my people to do the very same thing. And so we kind of had this strategy of we want to be in Kansas. That's where our, that's where we're going to be and that's who we're going to be. And then beyond that, I figured out very early on uh, in, in selling these services that providing services to a 20-employee group is the same as, as providing services to a 60-person group. The challenge is, is that you don't get three times the revenue, but you get 2.8 times the revenue, but you have one-third of the cost because it's the same work to, to, to fulfill both of them. So we started going after clients that fit a profile that was... 50 to 150. That was our sweet spot was 50 to 150, which is, by the way, the 50 is, is two and a half times the industry average. The industry average is about 21. So we knew we were doing something different anyway, but it was really more of, of, of an efficient use of our time and, and utilizing our resources. And frankly, the 20-person groups tended to need us more. They needed more handholding. They needed more customization. They need a lot more because there you're dealing with an owner with 19 employees and they're still living in their business so they need more help person's got 60 70 100 employees a lot of times we're working with an hr director simply because they need the help and they they value the help because they're at a size where keeping employees happy and compliance and all these other things are very important to their business so it just made sense from my perspective to be that that's who we should try to service and go after it doesn't mean i don't take care of 20 employee groups i do but i take care of employee groups with four or 500 as well And we're not afraid of those because we believe that our service model is at a higher level than most PEOs are. So therefore, it allows us to be more capable of handling those larger businesses. What has that idea client profile, like how have you implemented that? Is that through certain clients that you're targeting or pricing strategies? Like how did you get that on the road, so to speak? Well, we just started targeting certain, uh, certain verticals that had those kind of clients in them. Light manufacturing was a good vertical for us. Hospitality hotels was a good vertical for us. Medical offices was a good vertical for us. Independent, the end of, not the hospitals, but all the, you know, the, the multi-practitioner uh, specialists that has, you know, 20 doctors and 58 employees total 
that uh, you go to if you need a specialized surgery. Those were, those were a really good place for us to go. And so we started concentrating on those verticals. We've since expanded. We've got a couple more. Banks are a really good vertical for us, community banks in rural Kansas, really, really uh, struggle with HR because their talent pool for recruiting good HR people is, is limited. And so to have high, high level of HR capabilities through us, they're able to get that without having to depend on one person to take care of, you know, 120 employees in, in, a, in a bank that has 20 locations or whatever. It's, it just makes a lot of sense in those scenarios. And we're, so that's what we do. We target those type of verticals and those type of industries that are in Kansas, that are underserved, that have the number of employees we like to service. And then we just, we're relentless in our marketing to them and, and we really cater towards trying to get them. It's not that we ignore everybody else. That's not true. Uh, anybody can be a client, but we really, really spend our time and energy going after those verticals. And we feel very strongly that if we do a great job, we'll get enough referrals. I'm going to give you an example today. I was contacted early this week by a gentleman who's a client with two of his businesses. He's actually an investor. And he, he, he was now investing in another company. And he called me and he said, they really need your help. And I have told them they need to contact you and, and they need to look at you. And, and the, the initial in email wasn't just an introduction. It was a, I really think you guys need to do this. Well, he's an investor in their company. He's going to have a little more pull. And now we have a meeting scheduled for next Tuesday. And, and the way the conversations are already going, it's like, well, how do we get started? And we haven't even had our first meeting yet. What's well, 250 employees? That's a sizable yeah. number of people to take care of. And it's probably about a $200,000 a year client for us. And, and, and at the end of the day, if we do our job, my longest tenure client has 350 employees and we've had them for 20 years. And when you do the math, it's multiple millions of dollars is what those clients value. So, and they're dear friends and they love us still to this day. That's why I like the larger groups is because you start really demonstrating your value and then you could sustain that value over time. And then it becomes just the way they do business. It's not a question anymore. Should we look at going to another provider. It's just everything works. It works really well. And let's just keep it going. So uh, it's, it's very intentional from, from who we want to be and where we want to be uh, and the type of clients that we go at. So it seems like those are two levers for you to get the client's overall lifetime value up, right? One is larger groups, right? But then also lifetime value of those clients a decade or two. Right. I have said all along, it's funny because I do, most people in my industry don't do radio advertising. Of course, that was my background before I got into PDF. So I knew how to do it and do it well. But I spend about $25,000 a year on radio advertising in Wichita, Kansas. And I invariably get one to two clients a year that typically are between $100,000 and $150,000 a year in revenue. And Year over year, you just start doing, what does that 25000 get me? It's getting me a lot. And that's why I do it. The, you know, the side value is you, get, you gain a lot of, of branding in the marketplace. People know who you are. People recognize the name. And there's a lot of intrinsic value to it. But I literally get one to two calls a year specifically from those ads where they heard them and said, we need to call Cindy. I think they can help us. And, and, you know, there are lots of ways you can advertise in this world. And, you know, obviously digital is becoming the new advertising. And I don't know it well enough to do well in it, but I'm learning and we're going to be spending more in digital this year. But the fact is, is how you build your brand and how you, how you represent yourself to the marketplace is important. And it's also important that you do what you represent yourself to do. And so it's not just, you know, saying it, it's doing it. And we've been really, really good about that. Uh, we don't over promise and under deliver. Hopefully we do the opposite. 
Orville, thank you so much for all the, the nuggets today. And there are obviously so many additional follow-up questions here. If the audience wants to reach out to you, have questions, what, what's the best way to get in, in touch with you? The best way is usually email, uh, simply because I get a lot of emails, which means I spend a lot of time in front of my computer answering emails. And really, my only two ways of getting a hold of me are my cell phone and my email, and so I prefer it to be email, but I can always go from there and have personal conversations if warranted. Email address is my first initial last name, bmanus, M-A-N-E-S-S, at com. Sendio is spelled S-Y-N-D-E-O. And you can reach out to me and I'm happy to answer any questions you may have about anything. If you're interested in our services, glad to talk to you. Hopefully you're in the Kansas area. Uh, otherwise, I probably can't help you. But I know people all over the industry, all over the country. And the people that I'm actually in a peer group with other PEO owners and that we're geographically in different places, so we don't compete against each other. So if you said, hey, I'm in California, I need some help. I got a guy in California. He's just like me. Or I got somebody in Portland. I got somebody in New York. There's me in Texas. I'm in Florida. Like everywhere you want to go, I'm going to know somebody that can help you. And and frankly, with my industry involvement, it's really about finding the best match for who you are as a client. And if I can't be that, I know places to point. So glad to do it. This podcast is sponsored by ThrivePass, a trusted PO partner for employee benefits from pre-tax accounts to COBA administration. ThrivePass empowers employees to thrive through exceptional service and innovative technology. More at thrivepass.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at po-podcast.com to learn more. I'm Andreas Deptoller and this is the PEO Podcast. We'll see you next time.